All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into GoodRanchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick and order to get that deal and let's get on with the show. All right, as state and federal legislatures all around the country are meeting, it is time to go behind the scenes to figure out exactly how the sausage is made. Because a lot of people are operating under the assumption that what they learned at Schoolhouse Rock is the way it works. Today, what we're going to talk about is some of the specific strategies that you can use to be a more effective advocate for what you believe in. And perhaps most importantly, the real revealing of how legislation comes into existence, goes through the committee process, how it's killed, how it's successful, and how you can engage in this process. All of that coming up on this episode. Thank you for joining us today, guys. I'm very excited for today's conversation because this is not a lot that gets covered on this topic. And I think that this is something that every equipped voter needs to have when they head into the voting booth. So I'm excited for this discussion with somebody who's actually involved in the process, and I can't wait to get into it. Oh, and an interesting process it is. I am Nick Freitas, member of the Virginia House of Delegates, but other than that, a fairly okay guy. With me, as always, my beautiful wife, Queen of the Bees, Tina. Hello, everyone. And then we have our political prognosticator and resident historian, Christian Hines. Hello. Nicholas Hamilton, the good Hamilton, the one that doesn't like central banking. I come with questions. Oh, he does. He comes with a lot of questions. And then, of course, our producer, Sour Patch Lids herself, Lydia. How you doing? I'm good. I hope you guys are as well. I'm really excited for all these questions. I think that everybody has a lot of them. So I hope that you guys are all following us over on Volley. I hope you're all subscribed and following our podcast on all podcast platforms. So let's get into these questions. I'm stoked. Tina, I'd love for you to take 60 seconds to tell us why you wanted us to do this episode because I think it's important. Okay, well, for years now, while Nick's been in the General Assembly, I will see a lot of um, discussion on social media and people, one of my biggest, biggest issues is people will completely misunderstand how a bill is written or, or how it looks in the code. And they will assume that everything they are reading is the new bill. When in reality, there will be certain things that are marked out, certain things that are in italicized. italicized, and italicized means it's new. Everything else is existing, and struck means you're getting rid of it. And so there are people who have gone, oh my gosh, so-and-so is carrying this bill that would make it illegal for somebody to badmouth a politician online and... <laughs> And they're also going to drag them to Richmond to try them in court. That's one of the actual yeah, accusations. Happened, yeah. So in reality, it was already in the code that you couldn't harass legislators. So that was already there. This person was making it legal to have 
whoever it is that's doing the harassing be tried in Richmond. Mm -hmm. And so the, the law where it was illegal to harass them already existed. So I had to come in to all of these conversations and explain this means this italicized means new. This is old. And it became such a big deal. I got calls on the floor of the house of delegates going like from the press, like, what do you think of this? And what about this? And this is what's being said about it. I was like, okay, well, (laughs) <laughs> this part's true. This part is, is inaccurate. This is why it's still bad and we need to change it. Sure. But yeah. Well, one of the reasons why is because uh, Lee Carter, our favorite socialist who used to be a legislator, yeah. um, we called him poor me Lee. Oh my gosh, this guy. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, he was one of the ones that was trying to make people come to Richmond to to deal with that. Well, we were the people, I was one of the people harassing him apparently. And, and he like, it was during all of the gun, um, brouhaha here in Virginia where we had like this massive, um, uh, lobby day. It was, it wasn't just a regular lobby day. It was right after the previous governor Northam, um, basically made it illegal to carry a handgun or, or in, be armed at all um, around the general assembly. And he was, they were doing sweeping legislation to destroy our gun rights. So how many thousands of people showed up? And there, there was, there was at least 20,000. They showed up armed, but anyway, long story short, because we were talking about these bills and everything, Lee Carter was like, I'm in hiding because Nick Freitas and, you know, his people are, are, th- you know, so threatening with their guns or whatever it was. I'm not even sure. So um, people were going on and putting up this bill and saying, look, he's trying to make this kind of speech illegal. And it's like, well, guys, I mean, I would love to pile on this guy just as much as anybody else, but you're actually kind of reading this wrong. Let me explain. Sure. And so I would love it. If we had a, a podcast where we explained this type of thing to people, how to read these bills, sure. and then also win the best advocate for them. Well, Nick, why don't we go over real quick, just to get the basics down, what the steps are for you to write, submit, and get other legislators on board to support a bill. Okay. So typically speaking, again, I'm, I'm speaking from a state legislative perspective, yep. but it's it's similar in, in some ways. On the, real on the quick, how many board. years have you been in the General Assembly? I'm going into my eighth year. Okay. I'm going into my eighth year. And to give you an idea, I sit on four different committees and I'm a subcommittee chairman for, for two of them. Um, so yeah, the, the way the process generally works is starting in July. So the July before you go into session, which for us is in January and for most state legislatures is in January of the following year. July is when we can start getting bills drafted through legislative information services. So okay. most states have a, have a place, not all, but most states have a place where you go where you have different lawyers assigned to committees. So you have your public safety committee or your transportation committee, and you have attorneys assigned to those committees and you have people from the clerk's office and their whole job is to facilitate the process of drafting legislation, amending legislation, um, answering legal questions to how it affects the constitution or the current code, all of that. So in July, we start submitting our drafts and a draft can be everything from an almost a nearly complete piece of legislation that we just want them to put into the proper language and code, or you can literally submit a draft and saying, I want a bill that gets rid of this. That's it. You can just send them that. 
And they will go in and they will look at the code section. They'll look at all the things that, and then they will present you a full draft that is ready to be submitted as a bill. And you can go back through the process. You can look at it and be like, oh, I don't like this language. I want to switch it to this. And you can do all that. And the whole, the whole reasoning behind that is you, you want a bill that has as few problems, errors, sure. especially like administrative or technical errors as possible. So that's what you do to get a bill drafted. Now there's a couple other ways you can do it. You can literally drop off a, piece of paper with your language on it to the clerk's office and say, submit that as a bill. Weird question. Is that lawyer position or attorney position for a committee? Is that a coveted position? Is that a competitive position? I mean, there's not a, there's not a lot of them. I, I, I guess I couldn't answer that. Okay. I, I would say that generally speaking, my experience with the staff on that has been excellent. Okay. It, it, they've been responsive. They've been helpful. Uh, there's only been a couple of cases where they did something where I was like, like I, I had one bill that I got to, I was getting rid of something and they added a fee um, or I was including somebody. I said, okay, like we have, we have different wine laws in Virginia. I said, well, I think a bed and breakfast should be able to give you a bottle of wine without having to get a liquor license or something like that. Sure. And they, they said, okay, they added that language and then they add, they increased the fee. I said, what are you doing? And, and that was like on page 12. It wasn't on a page I even saw. Like, oh, well, we typically do this when we expand. I said, okay. Just so we're clear between you and me, just so you know, you ever get a bill from me, it will never include something like that. So please don't ever automatically add anything like that, that again. Oh, I was I was furious. I was so mad because I had because all of a sudden people were like, Delegate Freitas wants a fee increase. And I had to go through the process of actually like amending it and get ready. So you, you get your bill drafted. And then you might go through the process of getting uh, what we call in, in Virginia patrons, um, uh, what they call up in other places, they might call them sponsors. Um, and so that's when you're going to other people and you're saying, Hey, would you like to officially co-patron my bill? And that's when their name goes on it as either a co-patron or a chief co-patron. So you can only have chief co-patrons and that's usually reserved for people that maybe had very similar legislation. Okay. Um, or this is a very important issue to them. And then co-patrons are usually just something that you, you add on there at the request of somebody that would like to be a co-patron. Um, then you submit that. Once you submit that bill, it gets assigned to the committee process and it goes through everything. Does the chief patron have a, a role that the co-patrons don't? What's the significance well, you of have, that you role? Well, you have a patron, you have a chief co-patron, and then you have a co-patron. Okay. Typically, co-patrons don't do anything except sign on and say, yeah, hey, I publicly endorse this bill. It's it's considered a public endorsement ahead of the vote. Okay. Right? A chief co, again, is, is usually someone, sometimes we'll have people that will submit the exact same bill, and maybe one person is more senior, they've carried it more, they, you know, there's a number of reasons. They say, okay, we can only have one of these, so we're going to roll your bill into this bill, and then you'll be a chief co-patron. Okay. That's a common example of someone that becomes a, a chief co-patron. Another way to do it might be if you have um, a fairly large or substantive bill and you're trying to demonstrate that there's bipartisan support. So maybe you have a Republican chief co-patron and a Democrat chief co-patron, and that kind of sends the signal that, hey, this is you know, something that is generally agreed upon. Th those are all ways that you could potentially do that. Um, Nick, so what's an inside baseball point about understanding how legislation is written? Like what's, what's some things that go on with that? Well, so what I talked about before, the, the official drafting process, that's really important because like I said, I can show up there and just write a bill all myself and, and drop it off. Um, sure. But I may, I may have missed a code section that's going to be affected. So to Tina's point, sometimes people will see a bill and a bill, I've seen bills that are one paragraph and I've seen bills that are 90 pages. Now here's what's interesting. 
Um, within that bill, a lot of times someone will start to read through and be like, I can't believe this bill does that. In Virginia, this is different in different areas, but in Virginia, there's three things, there's a couple things you're usually looking for. If it's just regular print, that is already on the books, right? It's it's already law. If you see it like redlined out, then we're getting rid of that language. Okay. If it's italicized, that's new language going into the code. So when you see a bill and you just see like regular print, like you would see, right? It, nothing's changing with that. Sure. It, it's only in the areas that are either being crossed out, italicized, et cetera. That's, that's where you know what changes are taking place. And a lot of times the reason why a bill might be 49, 50 pages when it's doing something relatively simple is not because the bill is doing a lot of other crazy stuff. It's because there's multiple code sections that are affected and it might be two words that need to be crossed out in every other page. So the the whole you know substance of the bill might be in the first paragraph and all the other pages are just portions of the code that need to be you know two words that are changed. We get this with technical bills sometimes where they say, okay, we're no longer going to use this term. We're going to use this term. All right, well, you got to go through the code and you got to change every place where that, that term shows up. So even though the bill didn't do anything significant, it looks huge. So th those are just some kind of like inside baseball yeah. things that will help people kind of understand. Another um, thing to bring up also is the fact that they will use certain language. And in order to understand what that language means, you have to go to where they define their definitions. Yeah. So it's not just, oh, this is the common understanding of this word. No, there is a legal definition of that word. So if there's a word where you're going, oh, does it mean this or does it mean this? Well, go check the de definition well, and, and it'll tell you it'll, for sure. A lot of time it'll say there, you know, as defined in code section, blah, 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 blah. So you then, go to that code section that gives you the definition that's being right, used. Right. So for the purposes of the rest of the episode, give us one bill that you've introduced for the 2023 session that we can focus on. Oh, gosh. Um, so I, I have I have all mine drafted. I usually don't submit them until the week okay. of session, but I'll have you know constitutional carry for example. Okay. So that's when I'll have I'll have another one. Um, I have another one that's going to deal with um, uh, transgender surgery for minors. Okay, like what can you legally do? Because I, I don't think you should be I don't think you should be drugging and carving up kids. Sure, you know, in, for transitioning, you want to do that as an adult. That's your individual choice. But I don't think you should be able to do it for kids. Uh, so that that's another bill. I'm very big on on school choice, you know, education. Sure. Uh, however, there's some other people that have dropped some really good bills that are very similar to mine, like uh, Delegate Phil Scott and and uh, Delegate Glenn Davis. So I'm because this session I can only carry 15 bills. If Why I, is that? Um, we just made it a rule for this because we only have 45 days. Technically, we only have 30 days this session to deal with like a thousand oh, wow. bills. Wow. Right. So usually they, they extend it to 45 days. But so we, we told everybody like, hey, look, during short session, 15 bills only. Long session, carry as many as you want. You have 100 bills. But in short session, 15 only. And so when I see somebody else that's carrying a bill that's almost identical to mine, we might talk and I might call them up and say, hey, I've actually got a very similar bill, but I know, you know, you've been working on this. Can I be a co-patron? Yeah, sure. Or they might call me up and say, hey, Nick, I'm carrying this bill, but I noticed you, you've carried it for the last four years. Are you going to carry it this year? Yeah, I am. Oh, okay. Then I'll let you carry it. So th those are some of the conversations yeah. that take place. Well, let's take constitutional carry as an example, because yeah. we have an episode coming out next Tuesday um, or yes, next Tuesday about constitutional carry and why you submitted it. So let's say you get, you get the legislation drafted, you get it submitted, you get your co-patrons and you've gone through the process of getting support for this bill. How is this bill, if it were to be killed, most likely to be killed? Subcommittee. 
So the way most bills die is in, is well, there, there's a couple different ways. That bill's not going to be killed in subcommittee. There's a couple. That, <laughs> well, it goes to my subcommittee. Well, but again, this is this is one of the things, too, where it kind of depends. So typically a bill gets assigned to the committee that you would expect it. It's a health care bill. It gets assigned to the health committee. It's a, a bill that increases a felony penalty. It gets sent to court of justice. It's a bill to build a road. It gets sent to transportation, right? So we all kind of, but then there's also the rules committee. And the rules committee is kind of like the all-powerful committee that not only establishes the rules for the House of Delegates, but a lot of times it will hear specific bills. And sometimes bills that might be more controversial will get sent to rules. Now, that doesn't mean they never get out of rules. Sometimes they go to rules initially. And sometimes that's because um, leadership or committee chairs might have a question for you before it gets officially assigned to another committee. Um, But typically the way the process works is a bill gets assigned to the committee that is most appropriate to hear it. And then once it goes to that committee, it goes to a subcommittee. And like I, I usually tell people something like 60 to 70% of bills die in subcommittee. And, and usually what that is, is they're bills that are either very controversial or you don't have a, a lot of buy-in from people. And so the end result is, um, you know, you just can't get the votes in that subcommittee. And so it's never heard in full committee and it never goes to the floor. By the time a bill, most people don't understand this, by the time a bill gets to the floor, that's where the whole body is voting on it probably about a 95% chance or better that it's already going to pass. Okay. Because it's already been through that process, right? You already know that a majority of your own people are going to vote for it, so it's going to get through. And that's when most people start seeing it on their radar and they yeah. go, wait a minute, and then, then they're calling people. And they're, it's it's too late at that point. Yeah, it's way too late. And so, Or, or, or what will happen Not is, always. Not there, always. There's <laughs> the speaker's dog bill. Remember that? Yeah, that's true. We have killed bills on the floor. In fact, we killed a speaker's bill on the floor once. Never happens. Never Hap- speakers bills don't die period but for a speaker's bill to die on the floor is like unheard of but it, it happened um, well that's because of matt ferris's amazing speech <laughs> he did give a pretty i've got speech. that on my facebook page it's public it, it's gotten uh, like sixty thousand views on it was, my it was wow. he gave a very yeah. funny speech but it was it, it was one of those weird situations where you had uh, most of the democrats were voting against it and about half the republicans didn't like it either and so you actually had this weird group of people that killed this bill. Um, but the, the larger point here is if you're not paying attention, if you're not paying attention to the bill, uh, when it's going to subcommittee and a lot of people don't, they're, they're waiting for it to get to the floor. And it's like, most of them don't ever get there or at least not the ones that you're really interested in. Right. Yeah. Yeah, Sure. The one about renaming a scenic river, whatever. Yeah. Um, but the ones you're really concerned about that you're following closely, if you're not following that in subcommittee and committee, that's the time to fight for it. So. Yeah. When the, I think that's one of the thing, one of the reasons I wanted to do this is when is the best time to fight for or against a bill? And what I would love it if you would explain like two or three of the mistakes people make yeah. when fighting for a bill or against a bill and two or three things they can implement and do that would make them much more effective. All right. Step one, don't be crazy. I, I know this sounds I know this sounds obvious, but seriously, when you're advocating for a bill, please don't be crazy. Yeah. Right. When you when you show up and and if you show up and you're you're slamming on doors and you're upset and you you're demand screaming a, out of order, you demand to talk to people or or you're I, I had somebody show up who's a friend, right? Start to yell at the committee chairman from the audience. It's like, well, I I know what's about to happen to my bill, and it's not going to be good. And, and at that point, I understood why the committee chair was doing it. It's because if, if you can't maintain an orderly process, um, that, that becomes a real problem. So please don't be crazy. Don't be crazy. 
show up, have a good argument, be concise. Um, when someone is showing up at, at subcommittee or full committee, that's what sometimes you can be the most effective in advocating for your bill. Understand that you have between 30 and 60 seconds to speak. This is not because we're all evil people that are trying to, when you're trying to shut down debate. It's because we got to go through a thousand bills in 30 and days. we don't got a lot of time. And oh, by the way, 20 people are standing behind you to speak on this bill. And we've got 15 more on the docket and somebody else needs to use this committee space in 45 minutes. So sorry, right? So when you show up, if you're the sort of person that shows up and, and what I always tell people, your name, who you represent. And, and I always try to represent a group. I, I told I told a group this not long ago. They're like, how do we effectively advocate? I said, well, when you testify before committee, be prepared to give a 30 to 45 second spiel. And if there's five of you showing up, then have five of you representing five different groups. They don't know what the groups are, right? You can make up a group, right? They don't know what the groups are. But if you're, if it's just you speaking, that's great. That's you. But if it's you speaking on behalf of a group, I don't know how many people are in that group, sure. right? So I'm just saying, like, think strategically. I'm not telling you to lie. I'm just saying, think strategically. You show, yeah, five moms in your neighborhood <laughs> come just, up with a name. I'm just saying, right? You got, you, you show up, and then you say who you are and who you represent because that demonstrates to everyone on the committee who you are and like, okay, you're speaking for a larger group than just yourself. And then find something, the specific point that you think is going to be effective. Now, again, you got three or four other people talking about the same bill. Pick different points. If you all get up there and say the exact same thing, not only is does it do people not listen, it gets irritating. Because honestly, think about it. You're sitting there for two to three hours in a committee meeting, sometimes five, four or five, and you have five people that get up and say the exact same thing as if, oh, oh gosh, I didn't understand it the first four times. And we've got 20 other people that want to speak, but thank you for articulating the exact same point for a fifth time. Now, I guess I should listen. Think about how you would feel in that situation. This is not us being jerks, right? We, we've got, we're trying to do the people's business. So if you really care about it, don't just read it off of a you, piece of paper well, no, no, pre-written I mean, you, you by, can even, you can even do that as long if that as long as it's you, a little different than the person before helps, you, <laughs> but have a different point that you're going to make. Don't have one person try to make all the points and don't have five people make the exact same point, make sure. five different points and understand who the makeup of that subcommittee or committee is, right? This is another thing that people do. They'll send out a, they'll blast out an email to a hundred delegates and 40 senators. That's a form email. Right, you don't like it when you get them, and and when a form email comes into us, the first question we're asking is this: is this even one of our constituents? Well, can I add something to that? Because I'm I'm not accusing you of this at all, and and I know exactly where you're coming from, Nick. But I also hear the same type of thing from other people in office that are like, well, you know, the the most effective thing is handwritten, individual, detailed letters from somebody. I I I have a feeling. In fact, I know. That some people say that rather and, and then blast form letters or mass forms of communication because really they want less of the mass forms of communication. But I know mass communication works. No, no, mass There's bills where when when you're walking into I, I here, here's you and here's I work together in Richmond. We've yeah. seen this where somebody will walk into an office and and it is a powerful statement when you drop down. 10,000 pieces of paper that are all form, but you know that they've been signed, addressed from people in your district. So that's oh, that's okay, the wait, other wait, 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 so wait, 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 wait a second. That's, that's a totally fair point. If you're sending out a form letter or, or it's, or if you're part of a larger organization where all of you have signed something that does have an impact. 
I'm I'm talking about like I will get these I. I will get these form emails sent to me where it's the exact same text for every single person. And then all of a sudden, eight of them will show up in my inbox over a two-day period. And and sometimes they're my constituents and sometimes they're not. Right? A lot of times they're not. A lot of times they're not. <laughs> so what you need to understand is, is that you're going to have the most impact with the person that represents you. That doesn't mean you can't influence other people. So here's the question. How do you have an impact with people that don't represent you? Well, if you send them an email, right, and your address isn't on there, all they know is they got an email about this particular issue. That can be impactful, especially especially if you just added something in there that was a little bit unique to the way that you said it versus the way that the form letter said it, right? This is for emails where it's easy to do this. Um, that can have an impact. If you call and you leave a message, I don't know if you're my constituent or not, but if you call, right, and the legislative aide picks up, the first question a, legisl a good legislative aide is going to ask is, do you live in the district? And again, they're not being mean. They're not trying to ignore you. They have to give priority to the people you represent. And so that's a much bigger indication. But if you just leave a message, right, or you send an email without the address, I don't know if you're my constituent. And it just... And that can work to your benefit. That can work to your benefit. That can work to your benefit when you're trying to influence someone outside of, of your legislator. So yeah, to Christian's point, I don't mean to say sending the form letter never works. If you're part of a larger group that is trying to push something and you want to demonstrate based off of sheer volume, the number of people that took the time to either press send or sign their name to something, that does have an impact. All right. That, so is that a good clarification? Yes. Okay. Um, the other thing I would say is... Um, if you're going to if you're going to come down to Richmond now in Richmond specifically some I think most states do this now to some degree because of COVID you don't have to come down to Richmond to actually testify you can now testify remotely online and 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 that's good the way I run my subcommittees is that if you if you showed up to Richmond uh, if you showed up to Richmond and you're a constituent you get priority right and then lobbying groups and stuff like that get to talk and then I I go to the online um, and and I feel that's a fair prioritization you know, for people come down, but I, I let everybody, I let everybody get their word in. Um, but yeah, when, when you come to testify, that's the, the biggest thing I would ask you to do is if uh, the other thing too, is if you come down and you insult the committee or you, um, you, you assign negative intentions to everyone that disagrees with you, we, how would you, how would you respond if someone did that to you? It's not as effective. If you come down and you actually have an impactful story that affected you personally or someone close to you personally or, you know, something like that where, where you can kind of share that and, and, and help illustrate why this is so important that can be highly impactful. So that's what I would add to your 30 to 30 to 60 second speech that you give who you are, who you represent, you know, why you're there and why you think this, this bill needs to pass or this bill needs to fail. To clarify, in order to come testify, you have to be paying attention to the legislating legislation going to committee. And you need to sign up. So the, like, if you want to sign up to testify online, you go into legislative information services. Again, every state has something like Let's this. Let's put the links down below for anybody okay. in Virginia. Yeah. You, you sign up and you can go on there and you can say, Hey, I want to speak on this subcommittee. They have a whole thing for committees. You can also watch the subcommittees and the committees if you're, if you're interested. Um, the other thing that you can do is if you want to testify with a particular bill is you can actually contact your representative and help. They can help guide you through the process of getting set up to testify. Fantastic. And I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but can't you do like 
bill tracking and get alerts on bills when they're you you can they have a thing called lobbyists in a box i, I used to always recommend this and and it, there, there's still value behind it i think there's a um some of it you can do for free some of it requires like a subscription service but lis will at least allow you to be able to go through the process and see where things are at in the legislative process can i ask a question so uh when somebody decides that they really hate a bill how effective is it for them to go online um, to Facebook or Twitter or whatever and blast it, uh, it there? Well, it, it kind of depends on what your reach is. I, I think it's a good idea. The question that you always want to do on something like that is how are you going to blast it? So first of all, make sure you actually understand what the bill does, right? Nothing is more, fr I will give you a perfect example of this. I had a, I had a bill to make raw milk legal in Virginia, right? Again, you can smoke pot, but you can't drink raw milk. And, and again, I'm not, I'm not trying to say you shouldn't do the other stuff. You can stuff. drink it. You just can't buy it. You shouldn't do this. Yeah. You can't, you can't buy raw milk, right? You can buy a cow share and get the raw milk. So I showed up with a bill and I had worked on this for weeks. Like I poured a lot of time and effort into this because this was a huge step in Virginia to, to allow people to legally go out and buy raw milk and to legally sell raw milk. And I had to fight some pretty big industry and everything else. And I finally got it to a point where I had a deal. I had a deal and it was a, it was a good deal. It was a good deal for us. We were moving in the right direction of Virginia. And I had people show up that were supporting me, but there was an amendment that had been placed on the bill that I allowed to be placed on it temporarily. So we could remove it in full committee after we had finished the negotiation and, and everything happened exactly the way it was supposed to. I got the amendment removed in full committee. The committee chairman goes, all right, now who's happy with this bill? And nobody raised their hands to include all the people that were supposed to show up there to support me because they still thought the amendment was on there, even though I had told them the amendment's going to be removed in this full committee. But they were so determined to be able, oh, no, we, and, and the bill died right there. And the bill died because of the people advocating for it. Wow. So the thing I would tell you is that when you're, when you're going to jump on to advocate for something or you're going to jump on to oppose something, if, if you have someone in the legislature that you already trust, maybe they're the one carrying the bill, right? Or maybe they're the one that you know is an outspoken advocate against the bill. Take some time to either read through it or talk with them or understand, or maybe you have a group. Maybe it's uh, VCDL for gun stuff, or maybe it's fam family foundation for like family legislation or something like that. Talk with them to make sure that, okay, we understand what the problems are with the bill or we understand why the bill's good and what the, what the uh, talking points are. And, and then go out to social media and effectively advocate for it and, and build up a groundswell of support. But no, I'm, I'm a huge advocate yeah. of using social media. And you got to follow it at every step of the way because the bill travels mm -hmm. and different things happen to the bill as it travels. And sometimes there are so many amendments put on something that it's not even the same bill. And if you're still looking at the original and it's yep. not what you think it is, um, you're making the wrong arguments just yeah, we, we've had Without that happen before where, where people people start out either opposing or supporting a bill. There's an amendment change that addresses their issue, and then they still oppose it. Or there's an amendment change that completely changes it, and they still support it. Wow. And so this is another reason why it's important. Like if you as an individual don't have the time to track all of this day by day, but find different groups that you support. Again, VCDL is a great one you for, the for gun legislation, mm -hmm. uh, Family Foundation, AFP, um, uh, gun owners of America, NAGR, like there, there's all these different groups out there that advocate and, and usually kind of focus specifically on a particular area or, or, or whatnot. And if you trust them, 
they're good. They will give you updates on what's going on, what has happened. And that way you can be an effective advocate. Because again, if you're coming down or you're blasting things out or you're blasting out the wrong information, you can actually kill a bill you want passed or support a bill you want killed. Wow. Can I bring up one more thing too is, um, one thing that we see a lot is you'll have just a handful of bad actors, basically, um, legislators who just stand in the way of good bills constantly. But we have some advocacy groups that decide to go after people who aren't holding up the process, yeah. who just who just don't want to argue for it the same way they do. Maybe the strategy is slightly different, or maybe they just don't agree with the method that, that this group wants or what. And they will spend all of their energy and money and mailers and things like that going after that person. And the couple of people that are the biggest culprits for holding this stuff up Never get, get off scot-free. Nobody even knows about them. Nobody's even naming those names. So explain to the audience, how can they find out who the bad actors are and how can they effectively advocate to those people to try to get them to come over to change their mind or, yeah. or to get out there and make sure people know that that's the person. Here's what you need to keep in mind. The, the general idea is like, look, you need to be skeptical of politicians, right? You need to be skeptical of the motivations and the people that are influencing them and everything else. You need, you need to be skeptical of all of that. By the same token, you also need to look at various organizations that are advocating one way or another. You need to be skeptical of them, especially if they're making money based off of this advocacy. Yeah, right? They because, make more money off of perpetuating well, it than... Here's yeah. what it comes down to. There, there, there is a whole host of strategies and strategies are not necessarily good or bad. It depends on what's the motivation behind them and how they're being implemented. So for instance, you might have a group that is a, that is a conservative group that is attacking Republicans that have been weak on an issue. That's fair game, right? You have other groups that might... Um, you know, look for a, a particular a particular strategy and they advocate very hard for it. That's that's fine. You have other groups that I would say are very sloppy in the way that they do some of this and they end up attacking people that are friends, right? Because there there is a motivation and this is across the spectrum. There are certain groups that the way that they raise money is by is by making people feel like they're being betrayed and that they're the only group that really knows what's going on. And they're the only group that understands the inside baseball. And they're the ones that's going to tell you what's, what's really happening. And if you just give them your money, they'll make sure that they, you know, do X, Y, and Z. And I have seen some groups engage in that sort of behavior where they are a, a complete detriment to what we would actually want to achieve legislatively. Um, I have, we have, I have other groups that I know that play hardball like that, but they're really good groups. And the reason why they're playing hardball is because on the other side of this, there are, uh, legislators that will tell their constituents all day long. Oh yeah, I'm pro-life. Oh yeah. Oh, I I'm, voted 100% pro-life. Pro, yeah. I, that's the one I love. I voted 100% pro second amendment. What they don't tell you is that they actually work to make sure that certain bills never saw the light of day in committee. Ah. So that they didn't have so they to take the vote. So they never had to take, take the, the vote. vote. Wow. Yeah, and so I, one, of, one, of the thing, one of the things that is very, very controversial is called discharge petitions. Mm -hmm. So a discharge petition is where somebody goes to the floor, right? Maybe they, and they say, I want this bill discharged from the, the committee to come straight to the floor. Now, what that means is, is that we're going to completely skip the committee process which is not typically a good idea, but it is a method that you can use to force people 
to take a vote. Now, here's what usually happens. Everyone votes no because it's considered a procedural vote. And procedural votes are usually ones where we, we you you vote as a caucus because it's if you think about this organizationally, it's very, very difficult to run an organization if you can't even stick together on procedure. There are good reasons to stick with the caucus on procedure, and there are bad reasons to stick with the caucus on procedure, right? So one of the ways that someone can force everybody to essentially take a vote is by doing a discharge petition because what they'll say is, is, well, no, I didn't vote against the bill. I voted against the procedure. And- and and it's kind of like a nuclear option for demonstrating that okay well no did you did you ever intend to vote for this in the first place right were you, were you ever willing to vote for it and i i would say that that sort of tactic needs to be used very very strategically and very very cautiously um because it it it's not always the silver bullet that sometimes it's made out to be but it can be a very useful mechanism. Once you've gone through a process where certain votes, where certain people are holding up votes and will never allow them to get out of committee or never allow them to get out of subcommittee or never allow them to even be heard before a committee. Now you start, for me anyways, my threshold on when is it okay to actually like push this is, is when I look at someone that is going back and telling everybody, I'm pro-life, I'm pro-Second Amendment, I want it, I'm a fiscal conservative. But then they're the same ones making sure that they never have to take the hard votes. Okay, at a certain point, there's a threshold where it's like, no, you should be required on some level to have to say something on this publicly, to have to go on record. Because it is unfair to tell the rest of us we're not even allowed to vote for it. Because if I don't sit on that committee, I don't get a chance to vote for that bill. So it becomes a form of, of whitewashing the system to where, again, you can claim 100% pro-life voting record, 100% pro-gun voting record. But it's because it never saw the light of day. But it's because it never saw the light of the day in order to protect How them. do we there's, identify those people? That's the question. It's well, not that hard. Uh, it, there, there's so many organizations. Nick, Nick brought up an important point that, okay, I, I have some background experience on this because um, one of my jobs for many years was was doing this type of work, the whole, what, what, what what's known as the confrontational yeah. approach to politics. And there's an appropriate way to do it. There's a very effective way oh, yeah. to do it. There, and, and there's some some great organizations out there that do a really good job at doing it. And the way that they break it down is, is that they have they do what's called a five-column analysis. And you look at, at each legislator and you assign them a, a score. Now, this is the from the standpoint of the special, uh, from the advocacy yeah, This group, is the right? standpoint from you as, what, what, the, as okay. the audience. But what, it, what he's saying is, is that like – one of the things that we're going over is the whole idea of how do advocacy groups or how do people engage yeah, yeah. with this system. This is this is this, this is a formal process called. This is a formal yeah. process. It's part where, of the confrontational model. Yes, this is a formal process where you would look at a bill. Let's say that there's a a some sort of like gun control bill or a tax bill. There's some bad bill that you want to stop. You would look at every member in the chamber and you would start with the um. Well, if you're if you're doing offense you actually start with the weaker chamber if you're doing defense you usually start with the stronger chamber but but you you, you look at whatever chamber the bill's in and then you look at every single member and you assign them a score double minus means they're hardcore yeah, they're basically they card-carrying members of the communist party right <laughs> right like like they they will oppose you every yeah. single day every step of the way they're the one carrying the bill yeah. right single minus are people that almost certainly will oppose you but they you could be stunned but don't count on it, right? So they're they're usually like rank and file Democrats, um, people that have routinely have a, a track record of voting for or against whatever the legislation is on the opposite side of what you're pushing for. And then on the other side, you have double pluses. These are your people that yeah. 
you don't you don't need to do anything to them. You yeah. don't need to contact them. You don't need to write to them. You don't need to blast them on social media. You don't need to do anything. They're gonna they're gonna vote with you. Single pluses are the ones that you don't know if they're gonna vote with you, but they better be yeah. when the votes actually being cast. They're usually the people that you need in order to get the vote passed. And zeros are the people in the middle. They're complete wild cards. You have yeah. no clue how they're going to vote. Either they have a conflicting past voting record or they're brand new and they've never been in office yeah. and you have no clue how they're going to vote. The way that you're supposed to do this process is you start by targeting the single pluses, but there's two ways that you quote unquote target single pluses. If somebody's new in office and they've said the right things in the campaign trail, but they haven't had a chance to actually back up their words with action you would talk to them and you would tell your supporters to talk to them in a way different way than you would talk to somebody that has yeah. flip-flopped on the issue repeatedly and has a conflicting voting record where it's like one year they voted for it and another year they voted against it. You would talk about that person way differently than you would a freshman that doesn't have any track record but has said all the right things. They yeah. just haven't had a chance to prove themselves yet. What I've seen some groups do though is that they treat everybody the same way and that's not how you're they supposed treat everybody to do as it. Hostiles. And, and sometimes they'll treat the double pluses as the bad guys. And that's yeah. really not the way that you're supposed to do it. You're supposed to reserve your attacks, your hard hitting saying, these people might be screwing us. You need to contact them now and tell them vote the right way. You save those types of, of language for your zeros and your single pluses that have in the past actually screwed you. Yeah. That, that's the and that's the biggest difference I've seen. I, I've seen the groups that do it effectively do exactly what Christian said is whenever they got somebody that should be voting the right way that is teetering, they hit them hard. Right. And, and it and it changes. Right. Like initially it's like, hey, we really want to encourage you to do the right thing like you said you would. And then when it starts to become obvious or maybe there was a voting committee that that went off tracks and this is when they come back and like this person is betraying us and you better call them up. Perfectly acceptable. Great tactic works. I've seen other groups where they came in and they just lambasted everybody. Uh, I mean, not me, right? not a couple other, but they lambasted other people to the point where I was calling them up going, what are you doing? Like you blasted seven people that were all ready to vote for this bill. Four of them were freshmen and didn't, they weren't even sitting on the subcommittee where the bill was going to be heard. And you just told their constituents that they killed the bill. I mean, you lied. You know, well, they didn't do anything to help. They didn't even know that bill was coming up. Like you, you lied about what they did. And now all of those people are coming to me going, why the heck are they attacking me? I'm, and I'm sitting here honestly, not knowing why. And now it, it's put us all in this horrible position where these people feel totally betrayed because they weren't against this bill. They, they were outwardly for this bill. Like they, they would, they would be happy to vote for it. And that's but when a they, group loses its credibility. And then, and then what ends up happening? Well, that's one of two it, ways to lose well, but, your credibility. But here's, no, but here's what's worse. Everybody else, right. Who, who should have been the target of this strategy that for whatever reason was not because they weren't on that committee. They come alongside all those new people and they say, see, this is what happened. You thought this group was your friend, but they'll do this to you every time. Don't worry about it. Look, we're going to make sure you're, you're taken care of. And what that group just did was drive all of these new legislators right into the arms of the people that they should have been targeting. And wow. they, and so, yeah. but you know what they do? They make a ton of money because the more they can convince the base, yep. 
that everybody's arrayed against them and they're the it one organization the organization that is sending out the mailers and they because as soon as they send the out the, what they do is they send out all those mailers attacking all these people then they do an email to all of Donate their base now. and they say we just held all 22 of these republicans accountable for you know trying to kill this legislation donate now so we can save this pe-. and i'm sitting here going what a grift can can we talk yeah. about the other grift that's in the opposite direction yes where because this is, we have not had a chance to talk about this. That's one side that a lot of people don't know. Yeah. There's another side that is, quite frankly, the thing that that creates, quote unquote, radicalized people yeah. in politics, yep. which is the front groups that betray us yep. yes. and provide cover to the bad guys mm. that repeatedly vote against things that conservatives want, vote against things like constitutional carry, or vote against things that are pro-life, or vote against yeah. things to cut taxes. They'll be like, we we didn't grade that vote. The, yeah. And, and, of and the didn't. way that they'll grade it is, is that- what it, do you mean, Hold on, what do you mean front groups? Oh, oh there's, there's organizations that on paper- names? I don't know about that. There's organizations- <laughs> All over the country, in at the state level, at the federal level especially, here's a good example historically, the Chamber of Commerce. Yeah. That is historically probably the best example I can think of because 30, 40 years ago, the Chamber of Commerce was actually probably a pretty good organization. It was fairly pro, actually pro-business. It was fairly pro-low low tax and, and, and low government low regulations. regulations. Look at where the Chamber of Commerce is today versus where it was in, say, like the 90s. And the Chamber of Commerce today is the enemy of conservatives. Straight up cronyism. Actually, like legitimate ideological opponents of conservatives. If you were listening to this podcast and you remotely agree with the people that you were listening to, you probably oppose the Chamber of Commerce now more than you support them. The, I remember when the Chamber of Commerce endorsed Abigail Spamberger yeah. for, well, for and, Congress. And keep, keep in mind, keep in mind, there's there can be a huge departure between the, the national level Chamber of Commerce and your local sure. Chamber of Commerce, right? So it's not like every Chamber of Commerce or every Chamber of Commerce organization is bad. But the point is, is that you have organizations, so you have organizations on one side that ideologically you agree with, but they're very sloppy and bad at how they do it. They end up being counterproductive, but they end up raising a lot of money. Right. So that's that's one grift. The other grift is what Christian's talking about. And those are the groups that tell you they agree with you ideologically, but they're the very organizations providing top cover for the people that are actually screwing you behind the scenes. What incentive do they have to provide top cover? Because they still have the they still have the access. And so what happens is, is whenever they do want something, they're seen as the reasonable group. They're seen as the okay group to operate with. And so what ends up happening is when they do want something done, they, they can get it done, right? But they will give top cover on a lot of other things that might actually be. So like constitutional carry is a good example of this. There's, there's a lot of, you know, quote unquote pro-gun groups that will talk about their pro-gun all day long, but then they, they won't grade constitutional carry. And again, I'm, I'm not and, saying that. And I'm not saying secretly that secretly they'll try to kill it. It, it depends. Yes. Here's and an example. There, there, yes. there's al- here's also a difference, right? There's groups that will come publicly out and say we absolutely support this. There's groups that will stay neutral. Those ones bother me, but they're not as big a problem. And then there's some groups that will say they're pro-gun, but then they'll secretly try to kill the legislation while pretending that they're neutral or they actually support it. It varies by state too. Like yeah. a good example is the NRA. There's some state NRAs. I mean, I just said it, but but it's true. There's some state NRAs that are actually really good. There, there's some state NRAs that work with groups like GOA or NAGR. I, had, I will tell you right now, I've had a good, I have the 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 current, uh, the, the last couple of uh, people for the NRA in Virginia, I, I've had a very, very good working relationship. Good. So there, there's some yeah. states 
where the the local state NRA is is, is actually fighting for for pro gun legislation yeah. and will actually fight for constitutional carry. But then there's other states where they will. I, I I can give you personal examples of multiple states where where the state NRA tried to sabotage it until the last second when it was obvious that it was going to pass, and then they turned around and then tried to take credit when it was clear that there was nothing they could do to stop it. So it it really depends on the state. There, and, and, and that's just one example, but there's yeah. so many examples out there where ostensibly conservative organizations that seem like that they're on your side are quietly behind the scenes providing cover to the bad Republicans that are actually trying to kill these things. And you know what's crazy? You see this more in red states than you do in purple or blue states. Really? Yeah. There's states oh, yeah. like Idaho, hardcore conservative electorate, where huge, huge chunk of the Republican Party apparatus at the state legislature or in the governor's office or within some of these conservative groups are to the left of the average Republican that's in office in a purple state like Virginia. I don't understand what incentive they have to be not conservative but claim they're conservative. It's because when when you're in an environment where there is no cohesive political opposition the, the, the democrats have no chance in idaho yeah like period the, the republicans have a super majority in the legislature they have all the seats you know in congress and the senate they have the governorship they have everything right and so in a state like that when there's no opposition you have no fear of ever losing anything other than your primary so what do you do mm -hmm. um you just control the entire process and you make it impossible for anybody to ever challenge you mm. And how do you do it? How, how do you make it impossible for anybody to ever challenge you? Well, you don't do anything. You don't. You don't give anybody right. a reason, a motivation to ever to ever come out and oppose you. A, at least well, in purple so states, the Republicans have to. They have to appeal to the conservative base because they need those people to vote for them to beat the Democrats, right? And so in Virginia, as much as we get upset at all the time, there's Republicans that do bad things in Virginia all the time, right? But when push comes to shove, they need my vote in order to win mm -hmm. statewide. Because if I'm not voting for them, they're probably losing. Because even though I'm only one person, there's enough people that ideologically are in my corner that that in a state like Virginia where it's so close, they can lose. But in Idaho, they don't need my vote in order to win because there's so many Republicans anyway that are just instinctively going to vote R that they don't need to placate me. They don't need to do well, anything. It's one, of, it's one of the things, too, where I, I, I tell people all the time. And look, to wrap to wrap this question up, um, <clears throat> There, there are there are good organizations, there are bad organizations, and and the way to almost look at it is kind of like a, a four box grid, right? There's there's good reasonable, uh, there's good unreasonable, there's I bad reasonable and you. bad unreasonable, right? And this actually works with so many other things in life in general. But the, where, where you want to land is you want to find the organizations that are good and reasonable, right? These are the ones that are effective. They know how to play hardball effectively, um, but they're not. They're not there to make money because they play hardball. They're there to make money as an organization because they actually get good legislation passed. And sometimes that includes a hardball strategy. Um, and then you have other good organizations that will will tell you they're good, but then when push comes to shove, they just don't they just don't yeah, do the that, best job. The, the, the two worst groups are the unreasonable, yeah, bad and like 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 uh, the, the box that I I told Nick this was like ten years ago when I told Nick I was like there's there's conservatives and then there's like moderates or establishment whatever you want to call them yeah. and there's reasonable and unreasonable yeah. the bad guys are the unreasonable grassroots and unreasonable establishment 
because both of those groups will sabotage you for completely different reasons. Yep. One has no clue what they're doing, yeah. and the other one is shoving a knife in your back. Yeah, like I, I know, uh, and I'll, I'll put it this way. There are groups out there, and I have colleagues in the General Assembly, right? The um, Surrender and Suicide Caucus yeah. is what I call them. Yeah, yeah. I, I have I have colleagues in the General Assembly um, that we don't always agree. We may both be Republicans. We don't always agree on issue, but they're reasonable, they're honest, and they're straightforward with what they believe. That that's fine. I can work with that. They are they are they are representing their district, um, and and I'm I'm happy to have an argument. What I don't like is when what I don't like is when an elected official or a group claims one thing and then does another or claims they support something and then does such a horrible job of it that it, it actually hurts the process. It actually hurts our chances of getting what we want, but man, they made a pile of money doing it. And so th those are the things to kind of look out for. All right. So Nick, uh, over the course of this conversation, I feel like we've really gotten an in-depth explanation of how exactly all this works. The only thing that remains to be seen, and maybe the final question you could answer for us, is how people can really make a positive impact. And what are the biggest takeaways for people just trying to make a difference from the grassroots level with their legislators? So when, when it comes to actually helping, like when someone comes to me with a bill, if you're coming to me with a bill a week before session, it's too late. It's too late. You really want to, you really want to try to get to those legislators, uh, depending on their schedule, several months ahead of time. So the earlier you can get with your legislator to talk about legislation, the better your chances are. Um, and, and have a discussion with them. A lot of times I, I had a wonderful lady that came up and said, Nick, I'd really like this legislation. And then I explained how that legislation, the wording might do the exact opposite of what she wanted. So find someone that you trust and actually be willing to have that conversation. Um, so that's good, but find them early when it comes to legislation, when it comes to advocacy, work with the patron, please, please, please work with the patron in order to give the best advocacy possible because you don't have a lot of time. You don't have a lot of time. You're not a professional lobbyist. You've got a job. You might only have like a, a day or two that you can dedicate to this during session. So work with your legislator, work with the patron in order to find out the best way that you can, um, that you can advocate for it. And then when you show up, if you're going to show up and testify, right, um, please, 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 again, work with the patron to figure out the best way that you can articulate a particular point within the time that you have. Um, I, I cannot stress how critical that component can be when it comes to the difference between a bill passing or failing. And then here's the third thing I would say. Now that you know that almost every time a bill gets to the floor, it's guaranteed to pass. Now that you know it's the subcommittee and the full committee that are, that are the most important areas for the, those are the critical moments when you can effectively advocate. Please understand if, if you've got 50, if you, if you got 48 people that you know are going to vote the way you want. Don't spend your time trying to convince 48 people. Focus in on the two, three, four, five people that you really need that could potentially come over. Focus in on those people. And again, if you're talking with the patron, they'll give you the insight. And it's like, hey, look, these are the people on the subcommittee you might want to talk to. These are the people on the full committee that you might want to talk to and explain why this is important. Um, so that that's the thing that I would really... I would really emphasize is that if, if you actually have a patron or a representative that you trust, then working closely with them and their staff all through the process is, is going to make sure that when you advocate for something, you're really doing the best that you can. And then uh, final point, I'm sorry, I know this is like a fourth point, but here's a bonus one. Um, 
make sure that you carefully vet the organizations that you're working with. There's a lot of really, really good organizations that will help maximize your time because, you know, again, you want to work with the patron, but you also want to work with those groups that you trust and have established a relationship with, but make sure that they're doing it right. Don't, don't just hand over your time or your money to any group that claims to care about what you care about. Make sure that you're actually checking the receipts, right? So uh, th- those are a couple things that I think would, would help people get the sort of legislation they want, get it passed, and really play a meaningful role in the process. Boom. Nick, this has been valuable. All right. Well, hopefully so. We'll see what happens. Again, it's going to be an interesting legislative session here in Virginia coming up yep. because we have a Republican House, we have a Democrat Senate, we have a Republican governor, as we've mentioned before. It's hard to get substantive things done when you got one house that can shut everything down. So we'll see what happens. But what I'm hoping for is that Republicans in the House are going to make a very, very good argument based off of the legislation that we carry, the way we advocate for it, that it's going to convince people that this is the sort of this is the sort of commonwealth that we want. And if we do a good job making that argument, well, then maybe they'll give us the tools that we need in order to make sure that it can actually happen. And you play a critical role in that process. Once again, thank you very much for joining us, and we will see you next episode. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to GoodRanchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions, and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, GoodRanchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to goodranchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.